American majority. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org. This is Ned Ryan, and welcome to episode 21, The Massachusetts Circular Letter. In the study of history, written records are, of course, absolutely indispensable. To say so may be stating the obvious, but we often take written accounts for granted. When all eyewitnesses to a particular event have passed away, all that remains is what has been written down. We rely on information immortalized in written records to know and understand what happened, and the documents from the time of the American Revolution are, of course, no exception. We also rely on written records to preserve the timeless thoughts and sentiments prevailing during an important series of events. Even in today's political discussions, Americans cite the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Federalist Papers for the universal principles that will guide the government in the most prudent direction. We do this because we believe that the founders of our nation intended for these principles to remain timeless and constant, concepts such as natural rights, limited government, and individual liberty. In the same way, we should examine the important documents of the 1760s to better understand the motivation of our revolutionary forefathers, and the Massachusetts Circular Letter is a perfect example of such a document. Drafted in February of 1768, the Massachusetts Circular Letter was the Massachusetts legislature's response to the recently passed Townsend Acts. I discussed the Townsend Acts in the previous installment, but remember that the colonists despised the Acts because they were Parliament's most egregious power grab to date. Over the course of a few months, Parliament had expanded the jurisdiction of the Admiralty Courts, altered the pay structure of some royally appointed officials, and levied new tariffs on goods imported to the colonies. Parliament explicitly stated that each act was meant to raise revenue from the colonies to pay down the crown's skyrocketing national debt. The colonists reacted especially bitterly to the Townsend Acts because with each new law, Parliament increased royal power at the expense of colonial liberty. In Massachusetts, after watching Parliament's rapid seizure of power, the colonial legislature selected Samuel Adams to draft an important letter to the other colonies. At the time, the young Adams was serving as the the clerk of the colonial house, and he had already earned a reputation as a fearless and energetic patriot. Thus, it came as no surprise that his letter boldly questioned the authority of Parliament and invited the other colonies to do the same. Being a circular letter, it was meant to be sent to one colonial legislature, then passed on to another, and so on until it had been read in each of the 13 colonies. Adams stated in the letter's introduction that it would be prudent for the colonies to harmonize with each other before reacting to the Townsend Acts. With the circular letter, Adams hoped to begin a discussion among the colonies that would limit Parliament's direct influence in America. The letter dealt with several facets of expanded British power, but it opened by reminding the colonial legislatures that the British Constitution limited the powers of Parliament. Adams wrote... As the supreme legislative derives its power and authority from the Constitution, it cannot overleap the bounds of it without destroying its own foundations. It is important to note that Adams considered the British Constitution to be a limiting document for Parliament rather than an enabling one. Instead of granting power to Parliament to pass any laws it wanted, Adams argued that the Constitution absolutely prohibited the supreme legislature from certain actions. The American Constitution would be written with the same intention some 20 years later, and it's important to note that the idea of constitutional limitation was prevalent in the American colonies decades before it was immortalized in our own Constitution.
Samuel Adams also invoked the concept of natural rights, such as James Otis and Patrick Henry had already done in past documents, and Thomas Jefferson would do later on in our Declaration. Like the rest of the Founding Fathers, Adams believed that certain rights were given by God to every man and woman and could not legitimately be taken away by any earthly power. Because of the Declaration of Independence, we are all familiar with natural rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Remember, though, that at this point the Declaration would not be written for another eight years. In the Massachusetts Circular Letter, Samuel Adams was most concerned with the pursuit of happiness. Adams wrote, It is an essential, unalterable right in nature that what a man has honestly acquired is absolutely his own, which he may freely give, but cannot be taken from him without his consent. In writing this, Adams was thinking of the new taxes imposed by the Townsend Acts. Adams did not argue that all taxation was wrong, but he strongly argued that it was only legitimate if taxpayers were represented in the body responsible for taxing them. He wrote that the Townsend Acts were infringements of the colonists' natural and constitutional rights, because as they are not represented in the British Parliament, His Majesty's Commons in Britain, by those acts, grant the colonists' property without their consent. This argument should sound familiar because it's the same one that the colonists would be making for years. Even two years before, the Sons of Liberty made taxation without representation their rallying cry, asserting that Parliament could not legitimately tax the colonists without allowing them to be heard in the legislature. And if you remember, the same Samuel Adams was a prominent Son of Liberty. In the 1760s, the popular solution to taxation without representation was to demand that the colonies be given seats in Parliament. If this were to happen, it was assumed that the colonies would have been less resistant to the the taxes imposed on them from London. Samuel Adams, however, did not endorse the idea of colonial representation in Parliament. He overtly refused it, making him a radical voice among his peers. Adams argued that it was impossible for the colonies to be adequately represented in London because of the sheer distance separating the colonies from Britain, and that parliamentary representation would only hurt the colonies further. He wrote, considering the utter impracticability of their ever being fully, fully and equally represented in Parliament, this House thinks that a taxation of their constituents, even without their consent, grievous as it is, would be preferable to any representation that could be admitted for them there. In other words, taxation without representation in Parliament was preferable to taxation with representation in Parliament. This sounds like strange logic for such a famous patriot, but Adams offered a third, more radical solution. He argued that the colonies should not have representation in London, Parliament should not tax the colonists at all, and that taxes should only be paid to colonial governments. Adams was also concerned with the way the colonists' tax money was spent. One of the Townsend Acts had reorganized the pay structure of several royal governors, giving King George the power to dictate their salaries without the approval of the colonies in which they worked. In the past, the colonial legislatures had set royal governors' salaries and paid them with tax money collected in the colony. Now, the colonies still paid the salaries, but the rate of pay was determined by the king. In effect, the king had a blank check with which to appoint and pay royal governors. Referring to this development, Adams asked, whether any people can be said to enjoy any degree of freedom if the crown should appoint the governor such a stipend as it may judge proper without the consent of the people and at their expense. Also on the subject of limited royal power in the colonies, 
Adams addressed the writs of assistance, which had been strengthened by the Townsend Acts. As I have discussed in past episodes, the writs of assistance were documents distributed to British customs officers giving them authority to search any home, business, or ship that they suspected of smuggling. Customs officers had no need for a search warrant, and they could not be held responsible for any damage they caused during a search. Finally, and most infamously, any officer with a writ of assistance had the power to distribute identical writs to anyone he chose, meaning that customs officers could be appointed, quite frankly, indefinitely and infinitely. Adams saw this system as a direct threat to the privacy and liberty of the colonists, especially those living in coastal cities where trade was a major industry. And he wrote in the circular letter that officers of the crown may be multiplied to such a degree as to become dangerous to the liberty of the people. Adams did not fear the officer's power to search as much as he dreaded the thought of an ever-expanding customs department that could not be limited by the colonists. The writs of assistance were designed to multiply British officers without limit, and Adams astutely observed a direct correlation between the expansion of the customs department and the reduction of the colonists' liberty. Despite the vocal protests about the writs of assistance, the Townsend Acts, and the expansion of British power in the colonies, the Massachusetts Circular Letter was not a revolutionary document. Adams closed the letter by assuring his fellow colonial legislatures that Massachusetts maintained its allegiance to the king and simply wished to bring a few important matters to light. He acknowledged that certain royal ministers had portrayed the American colonies as factious, disloyal, and having a disposition to make themselves independent of the mother country. But he assured his audience that such charges were unjust. It is interesting to note that in British royal circles, rumors of revolution had begun to circulate as early as 1768, but remember that at this point even the firebrand Samuel Adams would not openly discuss separation from the British crown. With his circular letter, Adams wished to organize a cross-colonial protest to the Townsend Acts, but he certainly had no intention of starting a revolution. It would be years before the prospects of independence would even enter the minds of the colonists. The Massachusetts House approved the circular letter in Feb on February 11, 1768, and distributed it to the other colonies. One by one, each colony read it, and Massachusetts received particularly positive responses from Virginia, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Adams' goal of cross-colonial communication became a reality as legislatures began corresponding about their feelings on the recent growth of British power. Though the reaction from the other colonies was sympathetic, the British Crown responded to the news of the circular letter spitefully. The British Secretary of State ordered that the Massachusetts House officially revoke the letter, but the Massachusetts House refused, deciding by a 92-17 vote to maintain their support for it. This vote was a major standoff between the colonial and royal governments, and the colonial legislature refused to back down. Samuel Adams, already responsible for the controversial circular letter, pressed the issue even further by writing a letter to the king asking that Massachusetts Governor Francis Bernard be removed from his post. Bernard became furious and dissolved the Massachusetts legislature on June 10, 1768. Needless to say, the citizens of Massachusetts were less than pleased with such a bitter act by their own governor. About three weeks later, John Hancock was arrested on charges of smuggling and British customs officials seized one of his ships in Boston Harbor. Upon hearing that the popular and influential Hancock had been accused of smuggling, the citizens of Boston began to riot, and a state of uneasiness and disorder ensued for several months. Customs officers were attacked, British officials were harassed, 
and it appears it appeared as if order might unravel in Massachusetts. In response, British troops were dispatched to Boston to occupy the city and maintain order. They arrived in Boston on October 1, 1768, and stayed in Boston for almost two years. The most accurate account of the occupation of Boston comes from an anonymously written series of news articles entitled A Journal of the Transactions in Boston. While no one knows for sure who recorded these events in October 1768, some believe that it was none other than Samuel Adams himself. The author described the day of the troops' arrival as a bizarre spectacle in which the British Army invaded Boston to police its own citizens. The author wrote, At about one o'clock, all the troops landed under cover of the cannon of the ships of war and marched into Boston Common with muskets charged, bayonets fixed, and colors flying, drums beating and fifes playing, making with the train of artillery upwards of 700 men. From this day on, British troops became enemies of the same people they had once protected, and they lived among them as an ever-present reminder of the crown's intolerance for colonial autonomy. This infamous standing army remained in Boston, causing colonial tensions to intensify until the Boston Massacre of 1770 threatened to bring Boston to the very brink of war. Days of Revolution is a podcast series brought to you by AmericanMajority.org and written by Ned Ryan and Eric Josephson and recorded by Ned Ryan. If you enjoyed this podcast on American history, be sure to check out The History of the Constitutional Convention by Ned Ryan at AmericanMajority.org or on iTunes. American Majority.